Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you've left for me in the comment section of my Critical Q&A videos or have sent to me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. Okay, guys, uh, I am really, compared to the podcast I did yesterday, I'm in a really better place today. Um, I want to thank all of you, everybody who has commented on, watched and listened to the podcast that I did yesterday about uh, Scientology Fair Gaming and how that relates to me and my life these days, and uh, or how it may. I mean, you know, the there is a question here as to whether Scientology is the one who's doing this hacking and intrusion efforts and malware on my site and all that other nonsense. But I mean, you know, like I said in the podcast, I think, uh, you know, deductive reasoning makes it fairly clear that it would be Scientology, but it doesn't have to be. I can't point and say it, you know, it's absolutely the Church of Scientology. So I just want to make that super clear, uh, you know, that, that, but it, but, you know, that is somebody coming around and, and, uh, and after me? Yeah, absolutely. So there you go. Um, and the outpouring of, of commentary and positives, you know, emails and, and that kind of thing is, really, really awesome. Really awesome. And that also includes people who have also upped their support for me or newly signed on on Patreon. And I, you know, I didn't even really think about that very much, but that, thank you very much, guys. I want to give a shout out to those folks uh, who have signed on or upped. Uh, this was uh, Slain Black Dragon, thank you very much for yours. Uh, Emma Jean, also, thank you. Uh, Tia Waters, thank you for signing up. And then uh, increases from uh, Cyprian Ivanov, uh, Isabel Morin, and Teresa Osborne. Uh, thank you, guys. Uh, it is very generous of you and very, very helpful, by the way, to the effort because, I, as I mentioned in the podcast, these things take time and money. So... All right, so all that being said, I hope you guys will check out that podcast that I did. And, um, you know, if anything, all this has done for me in the last, you know, 48, 72 hours is really invigorate my purpose in having this channel and getting this content out there for you. So, uh, all, you know, all you're going to do is see an increase in, in, in the speed and, and effort with which I am putting this content together. So, all right, let's go ahead and get on with your questions now. Nick C., do Scientologists believe that their Scientology training, communications, and other helps them develop the power of persuasion? If so, are they encouraged to use this power on non-Scientologists? If so, what are some telltale signs that someone is trying to work the Scientology magic in a conversation? Also, assuming all of the above actually occurs, is there a kryptonite to this superpower? Meaning, is there anything a non-Scientologist can do to signal to a Scientologist that the use of magic has been detected and is therefore futile? You know, we got some really good questions this week. These things are really making me think, and I, and I really like it. I've been getting some great uh, questions in the queue over the last few weeks from you guys. So, uh, Nick, this is, this is a good one. Um, okay, yes, Scientologists do believe that they have uh, powers of persuasion and, and intention, is how they would call it, with their communication. And this is actually part of Scientology communication training. It is the upper indoctrination TRs, the uh, training routines, TRs 6, 7, 8, and 9. I've spent quite a bit of time over the last couple of weeks describing in detail the TRs 0 through 4. 
Those are the basic communication TRs, but the upper indoctrination TRs, as they are called, are about control and controlling people, and not just controlling them physically or manhandling them. That is part of the training, but at the end of the final drill, you're supposed to be able to intend a person to do things that you want them to do without even verbalizing or vocalizing what your intention is. It's supposed to come across like, you know, Scientologists, <laughs> you ask about how can you tell. I'll, well, okay, well, first off, um, let me explain a little bit more about this intention and then we'll get to that. Because um, their eyes get wide and stuff. <laughs> tone, it, it's called Tone 40 Intention. All right, this is what you're supposed to learn. It's, a, it, or, it's also known as a positive postulate uh, or just intention, good intention in Scientology, okay? So intention has a, has a meaning or connotation to it that is, um, I, I, <laughs> it's satanic in nature. <laughs> you know, Scientology is not satanic, it's thetanic, <laughs> right, with the TH for the theta. And um, they assign a lot of causation, a lot of causative powers and abilities to a thetan, a spiritual entity or being, which is what you're uh, you know, truly are as far as Scientologists are concerned. So it's, you know, in, in, in the end, it is your intention that gets your mouth to move, your body to move, your life to run the way it runs. You know, it's your intention that makes things happen or not happen. Um, this is what being cause over life is really all about in Scientology is it's a clear execution of your intention without reservation across all aspects of your dynamics or your life. So, you know, if you could do that, if you could express your intention in such a way that other people complied with it readily and easily and, and without uh, any issues or problems, then you really would be the man. You'd be the guy. You'd be the person in charge everywhere you went in any situation. And that is how Scientologists kind of think of themselves especially that when they get trained on this stuff and they start learning about intention because this is this is the key to the superpowers that Scientologists are always talking about. And this is all a very trumped up thing. There's no reality to any of this, but this is what they think. So when you do these upper indoc TRs, then you learn how to physically and verbally control objects and people. That's the whole point of doing it. Um, so as to learn how to do that as an auditor, because in auditing sessions, auditors will have to physically move their pre-clears around and they will have to guide and control them through communication. Uh, so it's an auditing skill that people are being trained with, but it's also supposed to be a life skill. All right, so um, the telltale signs. All right, a lot, I trained hundreds of people on these TRs over the course of the years that I was training and, and supervising Scientology courses. I also did probably about 100 hours of these upper in-doc TRs as well as hundreds and hundreds of hours of the lower TRs 0 to 4. Upper in-doc TRs are not usually done as long or as much or as by, by as many people as the lower TRs 0 to 4. Um, okay, so a lot of students, a lot of people will develop this, 
this thing during the drills where their eyes kind of get wider. You know, they're intending like a beam, like they kind of imagine a laser beam coming through their eyes. You know, you are, it's, it's, it's almost, you know, like you could think like hypnotists, you know, the, the woo-woo sort of thing, right? Like they're trying to get you with their eyes, right? Mesmerize you. Um, that kind of thing is exp- is one way that it sort of expresses itself. Now, that's not just, of course, a Scientology thing. A lot of people get all, you know, their eyes get wide and they get early on. But, but Scientologists are kind of calm about it. They're just sort of like, you know, you will. It's like using the force. <laughs> There's a good idea. It's like they don't do the hand wave, but everything else is there. You know, you, w- you do want to comply with what I'm telling you, you know, sort of the nodding and the positive reinforcement. So, um, so you'll see that kind of behavior from them. Um, tone 40 intention or command intention, not command intention, sorry, but uh, intention without reservation or positive postulating refers to um, the, t- the very top of the emotional tone scale. Tone 40 or 40.0 is the top. You can't get any higher than that. That is native state for a Thetan, right? Anything the Thetan wills is what happens. And the reason, by the way, that people don't operate that way or, if, or don't know how to anymore or forgotten or can't get back to that state, as, according to Scientology, is because of all the trauma and stress and experiences that they've had over all these trillania that have beaten them down into a place where they don't feel that they have the right to express their intention or even recognize anymore that their intention causes things. Uh, this is a very common view throughout Scientology is this rehabilitation of one's intention. And this is why you see Scientologists gain a lot of confidence and also a certain degree of, if taken too far, certain degree of narcissism that starts developing within a person because they start thinking of themselves in a much, <laughs> um, what's the word here, in a, in a much greater capacity than they really have. <laughs> they start overestimating their uh, ability uh, in, across the boards, right? It's sort of a, a sort of re- reverse Dunning-Kruger sort of thing. You know, they really have a very, very, not reverse, actually, it's a full Dunning-Kruger thing. They have a full, they have a very full sense of themselves uh, and their competence and ability, even though they don't really know anything about what they're doing. Okay, so uh, now, so with all that background and all that, all those thoughts and stuff about it, is there a kryptonite to this superpower? There's only one thing I could think of. If you know you're talking to a Scientologist and they start doing this voodoo, woodoo stuff on you and their eyes are getting wider and they're trying to get you to do things or something, you could really throw them off, especially as a non-Scientologist, if you said, are you using Tone 40 on me? <laughs> you know, like just really inquisitively, like, are you using tone 40 on me? Or is that what tone 40 looks like? Or if you said, uh, flunk, your intention wasn't there. <laughs> you know, because that's what you'd say in the drill when you're doing the upper index. You say flunk, right? Because if they didn't do it right. So, uh, so if you flunk them in real life, that would really throw them off. They'd be like, wait a minute, what? You know? That would be hilarious, actually, uh, to try that. So any reference at all to Tone 40 um, or, po- or positive, po- you know, are you, are you, are you may- are, is that a positive postulate you're trying to make? That wouldn't really uh, kick it or, or impinge or get on them as hard as the Tone 40 thing, though. I think that would be a, a classic rejoinder to something like that. So I hope all that helps.
Steve Wood. As we have come to know, outside many of the Scientology orgs, they have these body routers that are trying to entice you inside the building so you can take their personality test. Now that you have left Scientology and are incredibly knowledgeable about all the schemes, would it be possible to answer those questions so that at the end, when you're finished and they're about to ask that question, they have no other recourse than to say, well, I guess there's nothing that we can help you with. Would it be possible to answer it in such a way that it leaves them no recourse than to admit defeat? Thanks for the question, Steve. This also got me thinking a little bit. And um, I guess there is, there are, if you got, if you had access to the testing manual, which actually had all the answers and scoring for the test, because uh, they are, they do it manually as well as through a computer, and, and I've graded lots and lots of personality tests. Uh, there are ways you can tell that a person has filled out the test randomly, just just kind of yes, no, maybe so, all through, you know, da, 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 da. the graph comes out looking a particular way. It's going to be in a particular range, and there will be certain lows and certain highs. Um, some of the test evaluators are trained to spot that right off, and, and many are not. So they might not even notice, and they might try to do a full-on test eval on you, even though you've just completely randomly you know, answered the questions. There theoretically is a way to answer the test in such a way that there would be like a midline. The, the line would just be straight or fairly straight across in the middle of the graph, basically along the zeros. Because the graphs go, the personality test graph goes from minus 100 to positive 100. And it graphs, I think, 10 different personality traits like happiness, responsibility, communication level, like extroverted, introverted kind of thing, stable, unstable, like these kind of, of personality traits. Um, I did a whole video breaking it all down, so you guys can check that out if you want to see that. Uh, okay, so, you know, you could probably figure out how to answer the questions if you had those grading materials to get a sort of a, a, a flat line. That would be interesting. I'm pretty sure that would stump them. They'd be like, well, I've never seen anything like this before. Um... Otherwise, no, I don't really think that there's any kind of gotcha graph that there's gonna that they're gonna is a get out of Scientology free ticket, right? Um, no, I don't think they have that because the whole idea is that, and the whole thinking that Scientologists have on this. Okay, this is not just a con that all the sales guys think is a con. They really believe that this stuff works. And they really believe what L. Ron Hubbard tells them in policies when he says, when he wrote, Scientology has all the answers to every problem or question that a person would be experiencing in life. Across their whole life, family, self, business, you know, work relationships, whatever, Scientology has some solution to the problems that you're experiencing. And they want you to have those solutions. So these are motivated salespeople who truly believe in their product. And they don't let people do the sales who don't believe in the product, right? So they're going to look for any opening they can find. And even if the graph doesn't give them an opening, it's really the communication that they're having with you and the questions they ask and the answers you give that really determine where the sales cycle is going to go. The graph is only a warm psychic reading. It's a way of them, it's a way for them to get you 
to give them information that they want to know about you and open up a conversation or a dialogue so that they can then get more information from you. So it's not like a totally cold reading where you go to a psychic, you've never seen them before, you've never been in their place before, you don't know anything about them, they've never seen you before, and they just start taking guesses as to what's what with you. A warm reading is where they have a little bit of information from you, either, you know, that they get somehow, some way, uh, nefariously or not. And then they're doing a kind of a, you know, it's warm, they kind of know a little bit, and you kind of, you know, you're kind of into it. Uh, that's more like how the personality test interviews go. Uh, so, yeah, that's, uh, that's my answer. Edith Colon Lopez. I was listening to your podcast on the subject of conspiracy theories. I myself was in a cult for nine years, and I know that I am vulnerable along these lines of thinking. What is your opinion of David Icke? I have been somewhat confused by the guy who connects the dots. It's been 24 years since I've left the Brethren, and I am just now working on my own cult experience story. I am so glad I found your podcasts. They are very helpful. Hey, thanks, Edith. And, you know, well done on getting out of that whole situation and, and tackling it head on here. I'm really glad that the work that I've been doing has been of help to you, really. Um, now, as far as David Icke, okay, so David Icke is basically somebody I have uh, put in the same barrel as Alex Jones or the Flat Earthers, right, or these kind of wingnut, you know, people who really can't think well and and delude themselves into their thinking and how great they are as critical thinkers. That it's it's very it's sad, really. It's kind of tragic and, and pathetic in some ways because these people think of themselves as masterful critical thinkers and they really can't think of themselves way through a wet paper bag. I mean, it's really bad. They, um, and, the, and the deep 9-11 truther conspiracy theory type stuff I'm talking about, um, the flat earth stuff, I mean, these are just completely delusional worldviews. And David Icke contributes to all of that because his view is that he had, uh, I, okay, I guess David Icke was, used to be like a professional ball player, soccer player, he's English, and then he um, became a, a media personality or I think a sports announcer of some kind, and then one day had this kind of glowing epiphany, which frankly to me sounds like he might have had some kind of head trauma or brain seizure or something. I mean, I've done a whole episode about uh, temporal lobe epilepsy and what that causes and the, some of the symptoms of it. We talked about that in relation to L. Ron Hubbard. Um, this was a podcast I will link to in the, in the notes below because I'd like you guys to check it out. And David Icke might very well be suffering from something very similar. Uh, maybe not. You know, I'm just totally throwing that out there to, as a possible explanation for why he has such insanely irrational ideas. But one day he had some big epiphany and um, he started talking about uh, lizard creatures from, I think, another dimension or another planet or something, and they were drinking, they were blood drinkers, and the royal family of England and other uh, high-level um, international bankers, I believe, or world leaders were part of this alien cabal that exists right here, right now, on planet Earth, and uh, this is what we are all subjected to, and we're in a slave society, and all the markers of slavery are pointed to, like the cameras all over the, you know, all over London that can see you everywhere you go and the surveillance state and, and every single um, 
controversy that ever arises out of the intelligence community is pointed to as proof that the alien people are real and that we are living in this slave state and a prison planet. This is where Alex Jones and Scientology cross, and they, you know, really find common ground on this. And David Icke is part of this. Alex Jones even commented one time that, that he wondered about David Icke as to whether he was some kind of plant into the conspiracy world because the lizard people stuff was something even Alex Jones couldn't get on board with. Um, and he was wondering, but I guess they, they resolved those differences. This was all years and years ago. Uh, so I think they're still friends and, and fellow conspiracy theory theorists. Uh, so David Icke was uh, somebody I first came across, by the way, when I was doing Sea Org recruitment. And I did a, a video about that and about all the conspiracy theory stuff we would use when we were recruiting people. But David Icke was one of the guys that I used to really endorse. And I thought this guy really knew what he was talking about because I didn't yet know about the alien lizard people part of his conspiracy thing. I had been listening to... As a Sea Org member, as a recruiter, I had been seeing some of his videos where he talked much more rationally about something he called um, problem-reaction-solution, uh, which is a conspiracy mindset sort of thing about world events and, and what's really going on behind the veil, right? Um, and I thought he had a pretty good line of reasoning there back when I was a Sea Org recruiter. I look at it now and I think it's absolutely ludicrous, but... Um, but at the time, I thought he was really, you know, really smart guy. And and one of the th one of the things that sort of started started my crumbling of all the conspiracy theory stuff was when I heard him talk about the lizard people, and I went, "Oh no, I can't lizard people! Like what? That's too crazy even for me." And I was a Sea Org Scientology recruiter, right? And the lizard people was a bridge too far for me. I was in no way I was going to deal was going to possibly give that any credibility. And I started, and I went, I went to another Sea Org recruiter who, was, who would use the same material I did. And I said, we got to stop talking about this David Icke guy. We got to stop quoting from him because he, if, if anybody ever Googles him and brings up this lizard people thing, we're going to look like idiots. We're going to have egg on our face, right? We can't be referencing this guy. He's nuts. And the other recruiter was like, oh, man, you're right, right? <laughs> but anyway, that's, um, that was sort of a part of the beginning of the end for me on the whole conspiracy theory world view. So, uh, so I wanted to tell you about that. Um, so that's my thinking on David Icke. I, th I think he's uh, next to useless to listen to. There's nothing really to be learned from the man. And I hope that helps. Kevin Zay. I was wondering if you think Steve Hassan's bite model can be applied to political affiliations, say hardcore Republicans or hardcore Democrats, the people who always vote party line and blindly follow presidents or members of Congress based on party alone. Yes, absolutely, Kevin. In fact, there are political cults. There have been destructive cults that have been centered around political figures having nothing to do with religion or religious affiliation or even a mystical belief system. It was a political belief system. And uh, I think Lyndon LaRouche comes to mind as somebody who uh, ran a pretty cultic kind of operation uh, for many, many years with, uh, with people who followed him, even when he, I think when he was in prison even. Uh, and there have been others. Um, this is kind of one of those cults of personality that develops around the politician. And, uh, and the bite model very much applies because within that 
It, depending, it depends a great deal, though, on how much advantage that politician takes over his followers. Uh, because remember that a destructive cult is all about the leader-follower codependent relationship and the, and the fact that it's an abusive relationship. When people go in with informed consent and willingly go into a situation where they're going to be working 18-hour days and not being paid very much and they're doing it for a cause, that inherently is not wrong. There's nothing inherently evil about making such a commitment. It's whether, again, whether there's informed consent, so you know everything that's going on and you're completely okay with it, and... Um, obviously, we would hope that the belief system or the, or the idea that you're trying to push or endorse or the person that you're trying to push or endorse would be worth your you know, investiture of time and effort and money and anything else that you're putting into it. Um, but that's a, that's a personal valuation point. We can't really look from outside and go, well, I, you, know, you can say, sure, that guy's wasting his time because Lyndon, you know, the politician X is a, is a dickhead and I don't agree with his positions. Um, but that's really just a matter of personal opinion, right? If, if they knowingly are, are in that situation where uh, they're working their butts off and, you know, again, not, maybe not getting very much for it, but they, you know, think the world's going to be a better place as a result, fine. But if they're being taken advantage of, if they are being defrauded uh, of money, if they are being lied to about their commitments, if they're being lied to about what the politician's actually trying to accomplish or do, if he says he's going to be doing one thing and they're there because of that and then he, you know, betrays them or has been lying to them the whole time, now we start getting destructive cult elements. And if that group starts getting into some real serious us versus them thinking and bubble world type con information control, then you've really got the, the beginnings there of a real live destructive cult. And you don't want to have anything to do with any kind of group like that. You just don't. You know, politics is politics, but it shouldn't be about hating the other side. It really shouldn't. You know, we shouldn't be, make it that way. And we, our extremist ways of thinking are what drive us in that direction. And when leadership willingly and knowingly drives us over the cliff uh, of that, you know, because of that or using that for their own personal advantage and, and you know, to hell with their followers, then you, then you have a pretty bad situation there. So it always comes down to context. You, there is no... There's modeling that you can do, but in the end, you have to look at every single individual and every single individual group before you can make an adjudication or, or real good firm decision as to whether you're looking at a, a cult situation or a destructive cult situation. So there you go. Madeline, do Sea Org members need to be at a certain level on the bridge to become a member? Are all staff members and Sea Org members at the level of clear? Staff versus Sea Org, what are the differences in benefits? As a staff member, did you get room and board? Okay, Madeline, so um, yeah, so you're asking here about these uh, levels of involvement, which I have explained in detail in, in earlier critical Q&A episodes, but I have not actually ever had the question posed about the requirements uh, of case level, so that's interesting. So. Um, no, you do not have to be any case level like clear or have had a certain amount of auditing or anything like that in order to join the Sea Org or join Scientology staff. Um, in fact, they get tons and tons of recruits who have had very little or no auditing experience. But it's hard to make a hardcore 
person who's going to be ready to join the Sea Org without giving them some auditing. Um, but there aren't. But my point is, there are not requirements for what level you have to have attained in order to join the Sea Org. Right? You can be very low level. You could have had one session. They generally the 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 kind of very arbitrary, very opinionated, but very true um, requirement that they definitely want for Sea Org members is they want somebody who calls themselves a Scientologist, not just some guy who's walking in off the street and never heard of the subject. They don't want that at all. It's always difficult and hardly ever successful, like one in a thousand uh, who makes it as a Sea Org member who, who walked in on day one and didn't know anything about it. Um, so they generally want Sea Org members to be Scientologists. For staff members at Class 5 orgs, not a requirement necessarily. You can come in off the street and say you're looking for a job, and they'll go, okay, well, you know, we don't necessarily promise you a whole lot of pay, but, you know, here's the working thing, and here's the this, and here's the contract, and they'll sign somebody up, and they'll, they'll get new staff. But even those guys, they want to make them Scientologists as quickly as possible. At least get them through some Scientology books, some basic courses, and get the person to say on their own volition, I am a Scientologist. That they very much want, especially now. I don't imagine that they'd be very welcoming of somebody just coming in off the street and saying they wanted to join the Sea Org uh, or even join staff. Um, and uh, st as staff members, do they get room and board? Uh, no, not as a regular general course. They do not. Uh, they just get a very, very minimal amount of money. And they usually have a whole job or life outside of their staff member position. There you go. All right, it is time for some lightning round questions with flash answers. SP Sheeds. I know that there is a kind of hierarchy inside Scientology that goes kind of like muggles are less than public, are less than staff, are less than Sea Org, where each commitment level kind of looks down on the level or levels below them. My question is, where do celebrities fall in this strata? They're officially public, but I assume they aren't looked down on as much, right? Yeah, you got it, exactly. They are high-level, uh, whale-status-level public, right? They'll always be public. Sea Org members will always look down on them. Staff members sometimes do, but staff members don't usually have such an attitude about being staff members. It's not so much a status thing for staff, but for Sea Org, huge status buttons. So, uh, yeah, that's pretty much where the celebrities fit. AC. When you were in the Sea Org and David Miscavige came by the one time you mentioned and reviewed you, how much warning did you have that he would appear? What was the reaction of your fellow crew when he left? Did he speak with tone 40 intention? <laughs> that's funny. Um, we had plenty of notice that he was coming because we, he was doing an inspection of the CLO, the, the organization where I work, the Continental Liaison Office. And I was in the Flag Operation Liaison Office, the FOLO, which was a division of the CLO that manages organizations. So he was coming around and he was inspecting all the offices in the CLO and going around and asking people what their name was or what their post was and were they hatted for their job. In other words, had they done the training necessary for them to be able to do the job that they were doing. 
the post that they were holding. So that's what he came around and asked me. And we were all on pins and needles when he was going to come around. We'd been up late cleaning and, you know, everything had to be spick and span perfect and all that. So, uh, so that was kind of that. And I would have said at the time that he absolutely spoke with Tone 40 intention. Blake Nestel. Was Hubbard down on LSD because of how hallucinogenics have been known to bring about perspective changes? And obviously, this wouldn't be conducive to creating indoctrinated followers. Or was it just his 50s conservative worldview that informed this position? I'm pretty sure it was more just the 50s conservative point of view because um, he was fed up with uh, some people who were Sea Org members who were on the ship that he was on or the crew that he was around, and they were screwing up. They kept messing up things, and Hubbard had written in a few places how pissed off he was. It really came across that he was pissed at these guys because they were stupid as far as he was concerned. These LSD drug cases that would have random flashbacks and would not be able to duplicate orders or get, a, get things done. Uh, and he was really down on the drugs uh, for that. He, he blamed the drugs 100% for it. And that was finally, I guess somebody screwed up bad enough one day. I can't remember what the specifics of the screw-up were, but somebody really messed something up. And he just was fit to be tied. And he just, okay, that's it. And he wrote this flag order and he said, no more LSD cases are ever to be recruited in the Sea Org. And that was that, right? It's, the, it's like... You can, get, you can go to the RPF if you recruit somebody who's taken LSD uh, and put them in the Sea Org. So it's, it's, it's a big, you know, hanging offense kind of thing. Okay, guys, thanks very much for coming around and uh, listening to me ramble on here like this. I really, really appreciate your viewership and support. If you think that what I'm doing here is informative, educational, and even mildly entertaining, then consider joining me on Patreon and help me to keep the lights on here and keep the show going. Uh, because I got a lot more content to get out. Uh, I'm not even close to being done. <laughs> so uh, thanks again for coming around, and I'll see you guys next week. Bye-bye.